we're looking at this saying, hey, listen, all these myths about, you know, men not voting for women or women aren't going to do well or they're a disadvantage for the party, they're simply not true. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. The renowned Roman orator Cicero once said, Nothing is more unreliable than the populace. Nothing more obscure than human intentions. Nothing more deceptive than the whole electoral system. But does the same hold true 2,000 years later? Today we're joined by Laura Stevenson of the University of Western Ontario, who discusses her involvement in research about how different electoral systems can influence votes for female candidates. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Laura Stevenson. Hi, I'm Laura Stevenson. I'm an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Western Ontario. That's located in the other London, London, Ontario. I was an undergrad here, and I did my graduate work at Duke University in North Carolina. When I was uh, in graduate school, I was looking a lot at institutions of advanced industrial democracies and specifically the Anglo-American democracies. Um, But then I got in with a group that was doing research um, about um, elections and voting behavior and how that related to attitudes towards trade and mostly actually fear about the consequences of trade and whether or not that affected political attitudes or political choices. Um, And at that time, you know, I was the Canadian in the group, so I was responsible for figuring out the Canadian data, and uh, I learned a ton. And so I continued doing my dissertation work on institutions, but really found myself more drawn to uh, looking into different issues about behavior. Laura and her colleagues set out to learn how electoral rules might affect women's representation in legislatures. Ryan and I were interested in hearing what the goals were of their study, as well as what guided the questions that they wanted to answer. The main goal of doing the study was to really see how voters would change their um, their uh, their votes as the electoral system rules changed. Right, so that was our our major goal. We wanted to know whether or not the rules would affect who gets chosen, right, or how they cast their ballots. Um, and then from there, we were able to get some additional products um, that looked at you know what might influence the decision making criteria that people use for choosing candidates under different electoral rules. And there's a kind of a large body of literature that talks about, you know, um, when do women candidates get voted for and under which reasons might they be voted for. And uh, it's it's quite interesting because, you know, a lot of it has to do with stereotypes and expectations of female candidates. Um, and the literature, I'll say, is pretty mixed um, in terms of the findings that exist. And so we thought that it would be, this is a, you know, an ideal experiment, right, to look at, okay, when is it that voters actually are more likely or less likely to vote for female candidates, you know, and we're giving them greater ability to express their preferences across these different electoral systems. So when that happens, do we see these individuals then, you know, using that, that freedom uh, to, 
put forward their preferences for female candidates. None of us are really gender scholars, um, and this was something that we could write about, you know, because it fit with our interest in electoral system effects. And uh, you know, subsequent to this, I have now published other papers on gender, and we're doing other work on. But nonetheless. Um, that wasn't the, the kind of our initial focus going in. Um, we really are interested in kind of what moves individuals. And so the purpose of the paper was not to make a political stand so much to evaluate the evidence. And, and to be honest, the contribution, I think, of the study in general is that it really does provide, I'll say, much better data to what we want to do. By holding individual preferences constant, um, you can really see just how the rules are mattering, right? And it's really hard to do that with other kinds of evidence that exist. The study provided EU voters with mock ballots that reflected the various systems that were used in the European Union. Doug and I wondered what it was that Laura and her colleagues wanted to learn from this information. In the case of this study that we're talking about here, um, th I mean, I'm we sometimes call it an experiment or maybe a quasi-experiment, but it really isn't um, of the sense that it would follow either of those. I mean, all we're doing is changing the rules, right? We haven't really affected anything else. Uh, we're not having the same kind of controls and treatments and things like that. But as political scientists, our, our key um, interest, you know, pretty much in this project was how do those rules actually make a difference? And one of the biggest problems is that you compare countries with different electoral systems and you're, you know, trying to say, oh, was social policy, let's say, affected, right? When you have a, a proportional representation system compared to a first-past-the-post system. But the problem is you're looking at different countries. So those different countries have their own unique sets of preferences and policy priorities. And so really you're kind of comparing apples and oranges and trying to attribute it to the electoral system, right? And it's really tricky to do this. So it, we want to know what are the effects of the rules of the game, but it's really hard to hold the society constant and just change the rules, right? A lot of people use New Zealand for this. It's the best case that seems to be most popular because they did switch their electoral system, but then you still have change over time as well. So the benefits of these studies that we were doing here when we ask voters to vote with different types of ballots is that it's the same person voting and all we're changing is the rules, right? So in this case, you know, whatever your political preferences are, they don't change when you put, you know, pick up another paper and put down one, right? One ballot papers. And so it's you exactly holding all your preferences the same, but now you've got a different set of rules in front of you. What are you going to do with that? So that was kind of the goal of what we were doing is trying to reach real people and keep their, be able to hold their preferences constant and just see how the rules themselves changed the, the way they, you know, checked off um, support for various parties or candidates. Like those in the U.S., elections in Canada use a winner-take-all system, also called first-past-the-post. But with the exception of the United Kingdom, at least before Brexit, no country in the European Union uses such an approach in their elections. So in addition to having parliamentary systems, EU countries also use different approaches to proportional representation. Laura described the three systems examined in the study for us. So we weren't asking people, you know, how did you vote today? We're saying, how would you vote if you were confronted with this ballot? And the key thing that we were really interested in and really informed the entire project is basically how do the rules of the game affect the outcome, right? So the rules being the electoral system. So just think for a minute, if there was no electoral college in the U.S., how different would things be right now, right? The rules of the game have really structured who ends up winning, <laughs> 
And so this is a big thing that we often talk about. And certainly being Canadian, we talk about this a lot, right? A lot of our provinces have undergone reform efforts. Um, our federal government was looking at reform uh, last year. I mean, this is something we talk about quite often in other countries as well. So when you have a parliamentary system, there are many other ways to vote other than first past the post. And so we chose three that were in use in Europe. So we had a closed list system like in France, which is basically the parties uh, would put forward a list of candidates, but for voters, all they get to do is choose a list. They don't get to vote for a candidate separate from a party. So if it's a closed list system where the voters only vote for the party, what they're going to do is support the party and then the party has decided who gets the the seats first, right? And so for the most part, the lists are going to be greater than have, sorry, have more names than the party is going to actually win. And therefore they get to put their, you know, their hot shots up at the top, right? Um, the second system was an open list system, which was the Latvian system. So you can um, vote for candidates within that list. Um, and the other was an open list with uh, panachage and accumulation, which basically means that you can um, vote across parties. It's a little bit more, I guess, creative in many ways, right? So you can basically, you know, make your own custom party. It's kind of a sweet deal if you think about it. Um, and that's used in Luxembourg. So it's a far more difficult um, system to kind of get your mind around, but it also allows you a lot more freedom. In the open list system, they could uh, uh, select by candidate. That was the key thing, but it was in, within one list. Whereas in the, um, the Panachage system, they were able to go across parties. That was the key thing. By 2014, the EU had been considering an additional parliament to be comprised of representatives from across Europe. We asked Laura how she and her colleagues plan to reflect this system in their study, as well as how parliamentary systems work in general. A parliamentary system is basically just a, a fused system when, for most cases. It's a, there are very many elements that can be presidential and parliamentary mixed together, but a straight parliamentary system is like what the UK has, or certainly what Canada has, where our prime minister is the head of our government, and the government comes directly from the um, members of parliament who were chosen by the people. And so when it comes to elections, we don't directly elect prime ministers. They are elected by their party getting the most seats in the House. But the European Parliament is a supranational um, organization, so it uh, is responsible for various elements of policy that the um, member states have kind of agreed to um, to work with the, the system for. So basically, um, each of the countries um, elect representatives to the European Parliament to help make those decisions. So the part of the study that this paper is based upon is the ones about a pan-European um, election. So at this point, when you vote for European Parliament candidates, you vote within your own country. Um, but what we were doing is a kind of uh, building off of a proposal that had existed to suggest there should be pan-European parties. So from each country, then you would vote for this party that would include members from all sorts of different countries. And so in order to make this more realistic, we created party lists that represented the seven different blocks, um, ideological blocks within the European Parliament. And we then randomized which candidates would appear on the list based upon which candidates were actually sitting in the European Parliament at that time. So um, the people who were taking the study would be able to look at who those candidates were by clicking on their information. Because we did it this way, you know, by looking at um, candidates from all 
all over Europe, there is a different level of information that is going on, right, with the with respect to these different candidates. So not only is this a European Parliament election, which of course is also less interesting to a lot of people than a national election, um, but we're also talking about candidates that people would really have no information about whatsoever because they're from some other country somewhere. The team included collaborators from Pennsylvania State University, the Toulouse School of Economics in France, the University of Montreal, King's College in London, England, the University of Oldenburg in Germany, and the Paris School of Economics. We wondered how such a diverse group came together in the first place. That's a really interesting story. So um, we're all part of this collaborative project called Making Electoral Democracy Work. You can actually go to the website. It's uh, electoraldemocracy.com, I think. Yes, it is. And um, it uh, is a project that was uh, started up by André Blais, who's a professor at the University of Montreal. Um, and he got a very large grant from the um, Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada uh, to take on this work. It was a seven-year project in total. And the point of the project was to kind of look at the intersections between political parties and electoral systems and voters. So we had a number of different things um, that were elements of this. I think in total there were t over 20 of us anyways involved in the project from everywhere um, across Canada, around the world. And all of us had kind of different things that we were bringing to the project. And, uh, you know, one of the, for example, my, my role was largely to uh, work on surveys. And we did quite a number of surveys over the time of the project um, for a bunch of different elections at different levels of government. Um, but so this came about because um, some of our co-authors had started to do a project very similar to this a long time ago. Um, actually, the 2002 French presidential elections. It was when my colleagues uh, Jean-Francois Lallier and uh, Karine van der Straten had done a project in France where they asked people who had just voted in an actual election to then come and vote in hypothetical ballots um, very close by. So the idea was that we were they were looking at electoral system effects. And when it came time to, like they joined the Making Electoral Democracy Work project, and part of that project had to do with outreach. So we were always responsible for trying to think of how can we get our information out to the general public um, you know, it's, it's a big component of what we were trying to do, in addition to, of course, trying to understand our research questions. So they came up with the idea, I wasn't involved at this point in time, uh, to do a similar kind of project as they had done in person in France um, with the 2012 French presidential election, but online. Um, so uh, this is when it became a little more of an uh, information dissemination or educational as well as data gathering exercise. So Essentially, what they did was created a, a website where um, people could go and learn about different electoral systems, and then they could also try their hand at voting under those systems um, as if they were voting in the French presidential election. And that, uh, that project led to uh, publications, um, and then we continued on in the 2011 Ontario provincial election, the 2012 Quebec provincial election, a provincial election in BC, uh, etc. And then, of course, it came time we were all going to be studying the European parliamentary elections. And we had uh, voter surveys happening at that time that were online surveys with um, using a survey firm to get representative samples. Um, but we wanted to do something a bit broader. So we came up with the Eurovote 
uh, plus experiment, which is what this paper was based on. And it basically mimicked a lot of the elements of projects that had gone in the past, um, but expanded it to the European Union, which brought all sorts of different uh, challenges with it. Next, Doug and I were interested in learning how the Making Electoral Democracy Work project came to examine the role of gender in electoral decision making. You know, this study had, uh, again, brought people to the website, allowed them to kind of look around and, and learn about different electoral systems, and then invited them to vote, right? Um, and after the vote, the voting uh, occurred, we then had a short survey of just some basic demographics that um, we asked people to complete. And not everyone completed it, uh, but we just wanted to get an idea of who was making the changes because a lot of the study of decision making ends up looking at the heterogeneity um, that's inherent in, in some of our uh, in choices that are that are made. And, and definitely people have all sorts of different uh, factors that influence how they choose to vote. Um, so we wanted to be able to get some kind of a purchase on that. So gender was one of the variables that we uh, recorded. And so when it came time to start analyzing the data, once it was successfully you know, gathered, et cetera, um, we said, okay, well, what can we do with this? Just saying, huh, what kind of patterns are there? What's going on? Um, and then when we were able to you know, spend a little more time out, we thought, started thinking, okay, well, what is it about gender that might we might be talking about here? And uh, you know, how does what we find in our study um, interact with the other the rest of the literature? And how does it help us to inform our understanding of uh, electoral system effects and and voters? It seems that the notion that female candidates are less electable is just hyperbole. So where did the idea come from? Laura talked with us about her thoughts on the issue. I guess it's a myth in many ways. I don't know any evidence for it to suggest that voters aren't going to vote for women. And so then the parties are kind of caught. This is certainly something in a first-past-the-post system like the U.S. or like Canada where, where this gets considered, right? So if all parties get to do is put forward one candidate, um, you're going to be really careful about who that candidate is. And, uh, um, you know, some places have primary systems, but not everywhere. And you're thinking, how can we make sure that the party has the best chance in this area? Well, when it comes to um, party lists, you know, same kind of calculations are going to come forward. And so you want to think about how many women get on a list, um, how many f female candidates that is, and then also what are their placements? Uh, some places uh, have actually gone to having not only quotas for women, but also rules about where they have to be placed on the list to create um, a greater chance of females um, being in the legislatures. Because again, these are just kind of elements that can can play um, and affect uh, the representation of women. So if you do have a pan-European district, you know, asking people to vote over uh, options of candidates that they might not know at all, I mean, there are implications to thinking about what kinds of um, shortcuts, voting shortcuts might the voters use? And is that something that is going to enhance democracies? After collecting responses from over 1,800 European voters, the team asked four questions related to their data. We asked Laura what it was that they found. So the first thing is, you know, does having more women on a party list pose a disadvantage to a party's electoral performance? So here's the, you know, the, the I'm going to call it the myth or the legend, right, that voters aren't going to vote for women. So they don't want to see that a party has put too many women on the list. Is that, in fact, a disadvantage? And so we wanted to understand whether or not it, it was true. We found that it wasn't. Um, 
The second research question was, does the openness of electoral rules affect the propensity to vote for female candidates? In other words, how do voters respond to there being an open list? And we found as the ballot became more permissive or more open in the sense that it allowed more um, expression of candidate preference, we found that in fact there was more support for female candidates by both men and by women. Which relates to our third research question, which is, uh, do voters show same gender voting patterns, as in do women vote for women and men vote for men? Well, we did, as I mentioned, as the systems became more open or allowed more preference voting, we did see that women voted for m women at a greater rate. So that would fit with the idea of... Um, of affinity voting, but at the same time, we also found that men voted more for women, just not as um, as sharply of a difference. Um, and so there didn't seem to be any tendency for men to then just privilege the male candidates on the list. Um, and the last thing we looked at was, um, did ideology affect the propensity to vote for female candidates? And in that case, we um, we had some challenges a little bit because we were stuck with the number of actual candidates that existed in the European Parliament at the time, so in terms of the actual gender breakdown. Um, but we found kind of middling support here. Um, uh, voters at both ends of the policy spectrum were less likely to vote for women, which we thought was pretty interesting, but I think more needs to be done because I think we were stuck with the data that we had. So here's again, because we created these party lists based upon the candidates in the House, um, the extreme parties simply had fewer female candidates. And so even if you wanted to um, vote for more women, there might not have more been more women in the party that you were supporting. And so this would have created the, the result that we saw because, you know, there were more female candidates for centrist ideology parties, and therefore it looked like they were voting for more women, but there was actually a limit to what could be done. Next, Ryan and I were curious to learn if Laura and her colleagues feel that their study might inform the way those in other countries consider their own electoral systems. We're looking at this saying, hey, listen, all these myths about, you know, men not voting for women or women aren't going to do well or they're a disadvantage for the party. They're simply not true. And it's really interesting because um, when it comes to looking at female candidates um, in other systems, we took the idea behind this study and we transferred it to um, one of the Canadian provinces. And we were interested in seeing whether we see the same kinds of um, forces at work in a first-past-the-post system, where we were also giving them the opportunities to vote differently. And our data, again, we're not finished with the paper, but they're not showing the same results at all. Now, we're not saying that women are disadvantaged, so that part is fair, but we're not seeing the same positive trajectory in support for women that we were all hoping slash expecting <laughs> to find. Lastly, we asked Laura what her thoughts are about the future of political science research into the public's support for female candidates. I think the you know the, there's a lot of different angles that look at um, gender and politics, and certainly the field is is growing. Um, so whereas at one point it might have just been about uh, you know how many women are in the legislature, you know that tends to be um, a kind of an overarching goal that you see. I think we're going beyond that to think about the the elements at play and and what's actually. Um, leading to the outcomes that we're seeing, right? And so in one case, it's, you know, whether or not voters simply don't like to vote for women. Well, we're, we're finding pretty much that's not the case, right? Is it about parties not supporting women? Well, that's a different question. And is that something that we should be um, 
paying attention to instead. And in fact, others have. So I think, you know, there's the, the stereotype and then there's the kind of uh, system-wide barriers that can exist or at least disadvantages that exist to having more female candidates. And I think actually that's where um, a lot of work is, is turning right now. So um, given that we're kind of moving away from the idea that uh, voters don't like female candidates, now we're turning to say, well, why don't we have more female candidates? And that's where we think about uh, a bunch of different barriers and they're not always hard and fast. A lot of it can be social. Um, a lot of it can be, you know, uh, culture. Um, and that's kind of the angles where we're looking now. That was Laura Stevenson discussing her paper, Votes for Women, Electoral Systems and Support for Female Candidates, which she published with six colleagues in the journal Politics and Gender. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials she discussed during the show. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Adam Morris from Harvard University's Department of Psychology. His game theory research suggests that while punishment teaches thieves to stop stealing, victims don't learn to stop punishing. Even though the kind of the gains clearly don't outweigh the costs, people will still insist on taking revenge on those who've harmed them. We hope that you'll join us again.